Uh, I'd like you, if you would, would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, as we approach this time when you want to teach us something from your word, it requires something of us. It requires our attention. It requires that we would have an open and honest heart with you, that what your Holy Spirit wants to lead us into, that we would be willing to be led and that we'd be willing to be taught. I pray that as your messenger this morning that you would add to my preparation your anointing, that I would be clear in the way that I communicate the truth of your word, and that, Lord, that you would allow this to be received as seed that would grow fruitfulness in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As I said last week, I'm, I started a very short series. It's going to be three weeks. This is week two. I'm going to, next week, we're going to be talking about Mother's Day, and then I will conclude this the week after. And again, I want to thank Dr. Jim Bradford for some of the thoughts that he has contributed to this. But last week, we started about when Jesus steps in. I don't know about you, but I need Jesus to step into my life all the time. Last week, we talked about when Jesus steps into our fears and And we have been talking about times in the Gospel of John when it describes four times that Jesus appeared after his resurrection and what he stepped into in each of those. And last week we talked about the fears, these great men of God, these disciples that knew Jesus personally after his death and resurrection were hiding in a locked room, afraid, and Jesus stepped into their fears Today I want to address Jesus stepping into our doubts, and then in a couple of weeks I'll wrap this up when Jesus steps into our failures. But if you have your Bibles, whether you carry your book or whether yours is an electronic Bible, or perhaps you can look online and and see it above me, but I'm going to ask that you would turn to the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter, and I'm going to read verses 24 and 25. Scripture begins by saying, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, By the way, Didymus means that he was a twin. It just means twin. So Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, meaning that he was part of the inner circle. We talked about the ten last week that were discovered in the room. Judas had already committed suicide by now, but Thomas was not there. And verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands... And I put my finger where the the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This is where we get the moniker Doubting Thomas. Have any of you ever heard that before? Maybe you've even been called that before, or you've talked to others about it. But it is as a matter of this particular passage of Scripture that we have a rather one-dimensional view of the way that we view Thomas. It was at this event and the words that he used right here that stuck with him, even though there was much more to the life of Thomas than just this moment. And here Thomas represents to us people who say, I will only believe something if I can see it. Do any of you know people like that? They will not take anybody else's word for something. If they don't see it, they're not going to believe it. And I want you to picture with me for a moment Thomas and the relationships that he has because in his words he says, unless I do these things, I will not believe. Now, in this particular setting, he is with men that are like brothers to him. They have had an unbelievably close relationship with Jesus and with each other for these past three years. And so Thomas in this scene was saying, I refuse to believe the testimony of ten competent witnesses who had seen Jesus with their own eyes. 
But I refuse to believe that. He refused to believe the witnesses of ten of his closest friends. These are men with whom he had walked with and been entrusted with and probably knew a lot of secrets about one another, yet he refused ten witnesses to believe them. Following that, he prescribes certain conditions which must be fulfilled in order for the report to receive any credit as it relates to him from his brethren. Thomas might have remembered at this point that his current way of thinking would allow nothing to ever be proven to him from other witnesses alone, which is the standard of proof by which even today our judicial system still hinges, personal witness, unless, of course, you're in a case that is all circumstantial, which requires one to believe things which cannot be proven. The 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle writes this, There is nothing more common nowadays than to hear people say that they decline to believe things above their reason, that they cannot believe what they cannot entirely understand in religion, that they must see everything clearly before they can believe. It is a style that shows a mind either proud or foolish or inconsistent. But this is the reality of Thomas, and Thomas honestly is way more like us than we ever want to believe. Thomas is just like us. In fact, as we look at this passage, we recognize that though we see Thomas as a doubter, that is just a little bit of who he is and who he was, and there's way more to him than what we understand because Thomas did not start out as a doubter. Thomas started out, as a matter of fact, as a hero, believe it or not. In fact, there are four things that we know about Thomas and his life that are quoted for us in this Gospel of John. And the first time that we see Thomas, he was a hero in Scripture. In fact, he is in a discussion with the disciples, and Jesus is speaking to them just a few weeks before he is crucified. And Jesus is telling them that he wants to go back to Judea and back to Jerusalem, even though they had just been run out of town there. The people wanted to kill him there. And the disciples, loving Jesus and loving their own life, loving their own skin, got together and said, Are you out of your mind? Why would you want to go back to a place where you are hated? Why would you want to go to a place where you know they've already tried to kill you? And so they're all trying to talk Jesus out of it, except for Thomas. Thomas is the only one that in John eleven sixteen says this. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, just so that we never forget that he was a twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Does this sound like a doubter to you? This sounds like somebody who is all in. In fact, it sounds like he is all in regardless of what the personal cost to him might be. Even if we have to die, Thomas says to the others, I'm with Jesus. Let's go. Let's do this together. It is interesting because this turns out to be a prophetic statement because like many of the disciples, many years later, Thomas would die for the gospel. In fact, Thomas is known as the missionary that started by taking the gospel to India. 
I've had an opportunity to be in India, and I had a chance to travel for 14 days having services beginning in the north and going all the way to the south. And it amazes me how even today those Christians in India look back and say, none of this would have happened had it not been for Thomas coming and bringing the gospel to us. In fact, there is a a marvelous cathedral that is known as the Cathedral of St. Thomas in Mumbai. But even today they recognize if it wasn't for Thomas, we may not have heard. In fact, there is a painting that was painted by Peter Paul Rubens that depicts the martyrdom of Thomas, where we are told that he was speared to death because he would not renounce his relationship with Jesus Christ. So Thomas, as you see right here, would later be willing to give his life for this Jesus as he spoke of. But he said as a hero, if we're going back to Jerusalem with Jesus, let's go even if it costs me my life. So he started out as a hero. Three chapters later, we learn a little bit more about Thomas because he was also an inquirer. Not just a hero, but an inquirer. A guy that wanted to learn more about the truth. Thomas is thoughtful. He is eager. And he is hungry to understand Jesus and understand what Jesus has come to do. I hope that that is a part of all of our lives. That there is something within us in our relationship with God where we are driven to be inquirers of the mind of God and the will of God and the heart of God as it relates to what he wants for each of us in our life. In this particular setting, they are around the supper table at the Last Supper. It's the night before Jesus is crucified. And Jesus begins to speak to them things that they do not understand because they don't capture the context of it all. Jesus looks at them and he says, I don't want your heart to be troubled. I'm going to go. But I am going to go to prepare a place for you. So Jesus says, I'm leaving you and I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And in one of the translations, it says, I'm going to build a mansion for you. How many of you have imagined in your mind what your mansion looks like in heaven? None of you? You are liars. There's some of you that are truthful. I have imagined it in my mind, and it's in the country. It's on the mountains. My wife will live in the city, but I will be in the country. And Jesus is telling them, I'm going to go away. I'm going to be building something for you. But I'm going to come back after I have prepared a place for you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you. And around this table in this setting, there is stunned silence. The disciples have no idea what he is talking about. And at this silence, they are thinking, what are you doing? What do you mean you're going away? Our expectation is that over these next few days, you're going to overthrow the Roman government that you're going to begin to set up a kingdom here. We're all in for that. What do you mean you're leaving? Things are about to get interesting here. And it turns out there were three disciples that end up pushing back in this discussion and begin asking questions. And guess who the first one was? Thomas. In John 14, verses 5 and 6, Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And I love the way that Thomas was hungry to understand because he set Jesus up for the greatest statement of self-identification that Jesus, I believe, speaks anywhere in Scripture. Because Thomas says, we don't know the way. And Jesus follows that up in verse 6 by this. I am the way. 
I am the truth, and I am the life. In other words, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going, and Jesus is going, this is fantastic because stay close to me. And everything that you want to know will happen. Just stay close to me and I will show you what God's will is for you. I'm glad that Thomas asked questions. In fact, I'm glad Thomas asked this question. And as a pastor of this local body, I want you to know I want us to be a church that allows good, honest questions. I know that the pastoral staff, our board of deacons and our board of elders are always open to answering honest questions. I've talked to many people who said they grew up in a church and they said, I have some questions. I have some really honest questions, but I just couldn't put things together in my mind. And when I went to find somebody in that church to ask them, I was told just to keep my mouth shut and to behave. Do you know that we have pushed away many, many young adults? We have pushed away a lot of people by letting them know that we are not interested in their questions, that just by blind faith without having to know all the information, that they just need to shut up and behave. Lord, would you please allow us to be a place where people can ask honest questions and where you can begin to address their hearts. We need to be a safe place for inquirers because we are all working through this. And if you're not a part of one of our small groups, the Grace Growth Groups, then I would encourage you because it's sometimes in that setting that there are questions that might be asked that you don't have an opportunity to ask on a Sunday morning. But I want you to know that your questions matter. Your inquiry about the things of the Lord matters. And I want you to know that there's a place for that. And so we see Thomas the hero. We see Thomas the inquirer. But after this, something happens. Because now in chapter 20, Jesus has died, and he has rose again, and now we come to the passage we started with, and Thomas is now in a crisis of doubt, from hero to inquirer to doubter. And in verse 25 of John 20, it says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I don't know about you, but I get to this point and I'm going, what happened? What happened in Thomas's life? To go from a hero where he was all in to an inquirer where he could ask good questions to where he is right now where he's saying, I just don't believe. I don't know what has happened. Some people have suggested that as Thomas watched Jesus slowly in agony die on the cross, that something inside of Thomas died too. That in seeing that scene and in watching that, he was just shattered, apparently. And like it or not, something in him turned in that moment because what was happening before his eyes didn't fit the script of what he expected to happen. Can I tell you that this continues to happen today in people's lives? That sometimes the greatest tragedy of faith, the greatest trauma to our faith takes place when God doesn't do something the way that we thought he would. When a circumstances changes the way we thought this would be what happened and when it doesn't go that way, we stand back and we're going, I don't know what to believe anymore because of what I just saw happen. 
And what happens is from the unexpected, when God did not behave the way he was expected, Thomas was shattered in this, and faith just seems to have died within him. A lot of us are like that. There are people that are sitting in this room today, and I know that there are people that are watching online, and you are living in a shattered faith. God did something, or God allowed something in your life that you didn't see coming. It was something that just shattered you, and you don't know how you're going to recover. And I think that that probably is true of all of us at one extent or another. We have all fought doubt. I mean, everything that we thought we believed at some point in our life seems to be falling apart. And God doesn't seem to be doing what we think He should be doing. And it starts sometimes like this, when God doesn't answer prayers that we expect for Him to answer. Or His answer looks completely different than what we had hoped. Some of us have had hugely traumatic spiritual experiences happen to us. And you carry the wounds around with you of something that somebody in spiritual leadership said to you or did to you that absolutely has shaken your trust in a loving Savior. Some of you have looked at the church and, and, and it's a miracle you're here today because of some of the things that have taken place in your life as a result of churches. And as a result of that, you step back and go, my faith is shaken and I, I am doubting this. Some of you are going through incredible pain right now, and you don't know what to do with it. And as a result of these circumstances, sometimes our faith starts to deconstruct when we face the unexplained or we face the unexpected. And the question that arises is, where is God? Does He still know my name? Does He still love me? Can I trust Him? In fact, you wrestle with real issues. And I have heard people tell me before, I don't think I can trust the church anymore. I ask you the question, does that mean that you can't trust Jesus anymore either? You see, there are times when our disappointment becomes, begins to initiate an institutional disillusionment. And here's what we hear from that. If that's the way people in the church are, I'm never going to church. If, if that's the way, if those people are representing God, then I don't want anything to do with Him. And an institutional disappointment becomes a, a reason to doubt the God that is better than all of us, who behaves differently than all of us. But there are some of you today that are battling this doubt because of an institutional disappointment. Let me tell you something. Jesus may be the head of the church, but we as his body don't always honor him the way that we ought to. And so let's give each other some grace. Sometimes your faith can become deconstructed because you're just exhausted. We have just gone through an exhausting time in our world. I see it in people's lives. When you are exhausted and when you are burned out, something starts to deconstruct in your faith. It becomes harder to trust. It becomes harder to believe. And it becomes harder to even feel God's presence with you. And you begin to wonder, is this all real? 
And I don't know that Thomas was exhausted, but I do know that everything he thought he believed in was shattered as he watched his Lord die on the cross, and something there brought him to the place where believing the resurrection had taken place was a step too far for him. This is beyond my ability to have faith and believe in. And if Thomas's life describes you today, then you need to know that there is a way back. There is a way back to faith. I believe that if you're really being harassed with doubt today, as I believe that all of us are at time, from time to time, I believe that there is a way back for you. And here is the way back for Thomas. It tells us in John chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. A week later, I want you to notice that the time difference. A week later, this doubt persisted for a while. Have any of you experienced that? A persistent doubt that was working to deconstruct your faith. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. I just want to stop at this moment and say this to you. One of the things that happens to us when, when doubt begins to grip our faith is that we normally withdraw from the people of God. In fact, we, we normally withdraw from church. There are some of you watching online today because you don't want to be anywhere near the church. You have had disappointments in your life and you have withdrawn and you try to, to get your food in the quietness of your, your isolation. And I want you to know something. The thing I admire about Thomas in this was that he did not lose his godly friendships in the middle of his doubt. But he stayed together with those that knew him. And I want you to know that when the enemy is battering you with doubt, do not give up on your friendships in the faith. It is sometimes these men and women that will stand alongside of you. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And, through, and though the doors were locked, man, I, I can't wait for my resurrected body. Just to kind of walk in rooms, doors locked, doesn't matter. We're just walking through all. I think Jesus was having a lot of fun here. <laughs> though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I love a God that brings peace. And the very next thing that John records is that Jesus turns and looks at Thomas. Can you imagine what Thomas was feeling in that stare? He had already read Thomas's mail. He already knew everything that was in his mind, but Thomas probably felt in this moment, what's Jesus going to do? Look at me and go, you doubter? Why didn't you have the same faith as the brothers that were standing around you? At least they saw me and they believed, but you, you just ruined it all. I don't know what's wrong with you. I never knew why I invested you in the first place. These are all the things that the enemy tells you about your doubt. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus calls Thomas over to him, which had to be an uncomfortable moment for Thomas. Thomas probably felt a little embarrassed because he had been so nervy as to dictate to Jesus the terms by which he was going to believe and choose and chose terms that would be most offensive to Jesus in this moment. But in his mind, he had seen what they had done to the body of Jesus, and Thomas, after watching Jesus die on the cross, somewhere in his doubt said this to himself, Jesus is never coming back from this. He, he's, he's not coming back from this. And in verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here 
See my hands. Reach out your hands and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. The famous painter Caravaggio in the early 1600s, paint, early 1600s painted this scene, which is known as the incredulity of Thomas. And I want you to look at this painting for a moment because it's powerful. And what do you see right in the middle of this picture? First, you see Thomas with Jesus saying, come here, I want you to stick your fingers in the wound if that's what it's going to take. And Thomas putting his fingers into the side of Jesus. But I want you to notice something else about this picture. Look whose hand is on Thomas's arm. It's Jesus. He's not pushing him away. He's drawing him closer. He's taken his hands and he's bringing it closer. He's saying, put your fingers in here. I want to address your issues. I want to address your doubt. I'm not afraid of your questions. Just come closer to me. And Jesus is encouraging him to not let his doubts distance him, but to come closer to him. Angela Donatio and Hubert Morris are about to release a book that's called Brave Enough to Believe. And in this book, they state this. First came the invitation. Thomas, come closer. Then came the imperative, stop doubting and believe. Jesus doesn't say, Thomas, stop doubting and then I'll let you close to me. He didn't say that to him at all. Before Jesus ever issued a command, he initiated restoration. Oh, don't we have a loving God who always initiates that restoration with you. Jesus didn't withdraw from Thomas, and he doesn't withdraw from us. We are not the sum total of our worst moments in life. Somebody needs to hear that today. You are sitting here in self-condemnation and you just believe the mistakes I have made have made it impossible for God to love me. You are not the sum total of those mistakes because we have a redeeming Savior that will bring your hand and say, come close to me. We are known and we are wanted and we are loved by God who created us. And no matter what we have done or what has been done to us, when we encounter Jesus, we are invited in. He doesn't want to wait until we figured it all out before he moves towards us. And following this encounter, the fourth and last recorded words of Thomas in the Bible are found in verse 28 of chapter 20. Thomas says in this moment, My Lord and my God, I'm praying for you today that you have a my Lord and my God moment, a moment with God who says that you don't have to have it all figured out. You just have to let me guide you. You just have to stay close to me. And if you want to, if you want to stay close to God, then stay open to finding faith. This is going to mean a few things for you. Number one, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. You see, every doubt that you have is based on an assumption you can't prove. Thomas' doubts were based on the assumption that nobody could rise from the dead. And Thomas was absolutely, completely wrong about that. 
but his doubt was based on that assumption. Terry Eagleton, who is a Marxist atheist scholar, said, reason to be sure doesn't go all the way down for believers, but it it doesn't for the most sensitive, civilized, non-religious type either. Even Richard Dawkins, who is a famous atheist, lives more by faith than by reason. We hold many beliefs that have no impeachable, rational justification. In other words, we live by a lot of assumptions that we can't prove rationally. So famous atheist Richard Dawkins says, the idea that there is a God is so improbable that I am going to live my life on the assumption, an atheist, on the assumption that he does not exist. Let me tell you something. If you're going to live on assumptions, you better make sure your assumption is right. Otherwise, you are risking an eternity in punishment. I want you to think about your doubts, and I want you to think through the assumptions behind your doubts. If your assumptions are rooted in nothing more than disillusionment with churches or disillusionment with Christian leaders or pain or trauma or other things, those things might not be authoritative enough when it comes to the truth of who Jesus is. Thomas was acting on some assumptions that were not correct, and it caused him to live a life in a dimension of doubt. So stay open to finding faith and doubt your doubts, and secondly, touch the evidence. In doubting your doubts, I want you to encourage, be encouraged to touch the evidence. Jesus led Thomas's hands to touch the wounds. He said, touch the evidence. If this is what you need to believe, then touch me and put your hands in my wounds. Now, obviously, today, none of us can do that. We can't reach out and put our hands in the scars of his hands or can't touch the wounds in his side, but I want you to know something. There is evidence for the existence of Jesus. In fact, from October to December, I did an entire series on evidences of the Lord. And if you're new here, I encourage you to go back and listen to that because there is archaeological evidence. There is literary evidence. There's proof of the existence of Jesus from outside the Bible. I preached a whole message about the life of Jesus and didn't use one scripture. I used literature that is out in the world that gives to us the ability that if you are an inquirer, there is evidence that you can find as it relates to Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. There's scientific evidence. Science doesn't need to take our faith away. And so I encourage you in your journey overcoming doubt to touch the evidence. It's not just a fantasy. The Christian faith is rooted in real history. A God who entered space and time and has left his imprint here because of the way that he has touched and included us in all of his life. Tim Keller wrote this in The Reason for God. Christians do not claim that their faith gives them absolute knowledge of reality, but they believe that the Christian count of things, creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration, makes the most sense of the world. And I ask you to put on Christianity like a pair of spectacles and look at the world with it. See what power it has to explain what we know and what we see. And so I do want to encourage you 
Touch the evidence with an open and honest heart and watch how God leads you and guides you into the truth. But I also want to encourage you to do this. Be careful of confirmation bias. You see, we live in a world where oftentimes the only information that we take in is the stuff that confirms what we already believe anyway. We dismiss everything else, and, and, and we in the church are, are just as guilty of doing this as those that aren't in the church. But if you're going to approach God with an honest heart, then say, Lord, I need you to prove to me, to open my eyes, to see the reality of who you are and how you want to relate with me. But with an honest heart, God will lead you. And for those of you that are here today and you do not believe in Jesus Christ, then I need you to also, as you are inquiring as of the Lord, don't, don't you do the very same thing and only take the information that confirms what you already believe. Wolfhart Paniger, a German theologian, said this, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. It's hard to be objective, but I invite you with an honest heart to touch the evidence and inquire of the Lord. And be careful, listen, be careful that you don't come to conclusions that simply justify your favorite sin or for living for yourself. But with an open and honest heart, give Jesus a chance to draw you to himself. So I urge you to doubt your doubts, touch the evidence. Thomas had to do that. And then Thomas experienced a my Lord and my God moment. After touching the evidence, it tells us in verse 28, Thomas said to him, speaking to Jesus, when suddenly he is confronted with the reality that all of this has happened and everything that he wanted to see to believe is right there in front of him. He, he sees the nails, he touches his side, and instantly his doubt disappears and he becomes all in again. My Lord and my God, and Thomas served Jesus for the rest of his life. And all of this requires a desperately honest moment for each of us where we ask God to address our doubts. Lord, you know who I am. You know the way I think. You know what I'm going through. You know what has caused me all of these things. And knowing all of that, I come to you and I ask, would you give me a my God and my Lord moment with you so that my doubts might be overcome? And Jesus closed that moment after grabbing his hand and leading him into his wounds. He closed that moment in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. I looked at that, and for years and years and years, I often thought that that was kind of a rebuke to people who needed proof. As my practical theology has matured, I've come to look at that a little bit differently. I don't think that that's what Jesus was saying at all. What he is saying to Thomas is, I haven't ascended to heaven yet, and you and your friends actually get to touch me and see me and recognize all of this but there will be millions and millions and we trust billions who will believe me and follow me that will never get this opportunity blessed are they who when I confronted their doubts I led them into truth and at the end of it all they will rejoice by spending eternity with me 
because they let me address their doubts. Would you stand?